From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Wildfires have been sweeping through California, causing untold damage and destruction. Hurricanes seem to get stronger and stronger every year. Rising sea levels are forecast to make much of the coastline uninhabitable in the coming decades. This week on Benchmark, we'll talk about how climate change is reshaping economies around the world. And we'll look beyond all the destruction and doom to what business and investors can do to help. Welcome to Benchmark. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. And I'm Daniel Moss, columnist at Bloomberg Opinion in New York. Joining us this week in our New York studio are two colleagues who are particularly knowledgeable on the topics of climate change, economics, and business. First, we have Dan Shuri. He's the head of green and sustainable finance at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, our company's division that researches clean energy, advanced transport, and other key topics on the future of energy. Dan, thanks for coming on Benchmark. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. And next, we also have Emily Chasen. She's the sustainable finance editor at Bloomberg News and edits Good Business, Bloomberg's free weekly newsletter on sustainable finance. Emily, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, before we talk about all the disasters happening in the world, let's talk a little bit about green and sustainable finance. It's a topic that we haven't really covered on Benchmark before. What is green and sustainable finance? How big is it and where is it going? Yeah, I actually get this question a lot. People who cover finance particularly haven't always understood whether what's sustainable, what makes that different. So it's actually a huge area. Um, sustainable investors just hit $12 trillion in U.S. assets this year. That's one in every four U.S. dollar invested is invested with some sort of sustainable or responsible criteria. So that's actually been growing about 30 to 40 percent a year for the past five years. So it's really a rapid increase in this area. And there are three major groups of investors that focus on this stuff. There's a group that just avoids investing in controversial products like weapons and tobacco or fossil fuels increasingly. There's other investors that incorporate environmental social governance risk, and they just sort of try and quantify the risk of climate change or increasing inequality or bad corporate governance on their portfolios, and they try to invest accordingly. And then there are some investors that have gone so far even in this group to map company supply locations and where their key suppliers are and see if they have facilities in areas vulnerable to storms or floods. And then the third group is this group of impact investors. And those are investors that hope to invest in products or services that have a positive impact, like investing in lab-grown meat or renewable energy or sustainable agriculture. It's really just long-term investors, and they're trying to map the future and figure out what the cost of all these externalities are going to be on portfolios. Many of them are sort of long buy and hold type people. And Dan Shuri, how, how does this play into 
the topic of climate change and, you know, other sort of big sweeping things that are, you know, really beyond the scope of uh, economies or countries and really go to, you know, how the human race survives on this planet? So I think it boils down to two key questions that investors are asking, especially when you look at a, a topic like climate change, which is very large and, and very nebulous. Uh, and, and the first question is, how how do my investments impact the environment around me and the society around me? And, and the second question is, how does the society around me and the changing climate impact my investments? And those two are very different ways of approaching of the same topic, and they result in very different outcomes and very different ways of investing. Uh, and green and sustainable finance really encompasses both of them. So it's looking at both sides of the coin, both how you impact the climate and how the climate impacts you. All right. Well, let, let's move to the wildfires in California. They've been called uh, some of the worst in history. Can you just catch us up on uh, what's happening, why they're so bad, why these, this particular run of fires has been so destructive? Absolutely. So I've been looking at some statistics actually from, from CAL FIRE, and it looks like 14 of the 20 largest wildfires have happened in the last 15 years in California. Uh, and in line with that, uh, 10 of the last 15 years have been the hottest on record on the West Coast. So what we're seeing here is the effects of climate change really impacting uh, the, the, the wildfires. So the, the fire that we're seeing right now, uh, the campfire is the deadliest in history. There have been over 80 recorded deaths so far. There are still over 900 people who are unaccounted for. So there's a company, a utility company, the spotlight of this, this crisis right now uh, that may or may not be culpable, may or may not have started the wildfires in, in California that we're seeing this campfire, and it's really being, being impacted, and it's impacting the stock price as well. What we've seen is up to a 51% reduction in the share price or the share value of PG&E in the days after the campfire broke out. It's often said that if California were a separate country, it would be part of the G7 or the G8. That's how large its economic footprint is. Do these fires change any of that or have the potential to alter that in any way? Well, California actually has really strong climate ambitions. The legislature this year passed a bill that would require all of its electricity to come from carbon-free sources by 2045. And it also became the first state to require solar panels in almost all new homes. So those are actually really aggressive things. And California sort of sees itself as on the front lines of climate change. It's really worried about its beaches eroding and that being a huge part of the economy there is tourism. And the wildfires are really damaging this infrastructure like PG&E that Dan talked about. PG&E has like $1.4 billion in wildfire insurance, and that's definitely not enough given the fires last year and this year. So... And that infrastructure is what you need to do more renewable energy. And they're, I mean, California is launching its own satellite to detect methane. But these wildfires release, obviously, a lot of carbon emissions into the atmosphere. Um, they do set the state back. And it's um, it's really the, I know Donald Trump was saying it was forest management um, that caused the wildfires. But California is actually a tinderbox for a totally different reason that um, it's just had very scant rainfall and hot, dry winds and just been bone dry. About 88 percent of California was abnormally dry as of October 2nd. And there are wildfires like this all over the world. There's Scandinavia, Greece. There's record heat in Texas, Japan, Africa over the past year. Um, and it's just it, the droughts and the wildfires are all very interrelated. And the droughts are also a huge um, source of an issue for agriculture or jobs or food supply. The the economic initiatives, the the finance initiatives that you're just talking about, you know, not just in California but around the world. How long will it take for 
these industries or these initiatives to sort of make up for the kind of damage that's being done in the various fires that you also cited? So when we look at California, for example, I think there's going to be more damage for a while before we start to see any sort of improvement. If you look at uh, the potential liability that, that PG&E might incur, the cost that they might incur if they are proven to be the cause of these fires, it could well cause a bankruptcy and that would have a knock-on impact for the end consumer. You know, we talk about PG&E being, being a, a victim of climate change, but really it will be passed on to the rate payer, the electricity payer. That will have a huge, huge knock-on impact on the cost of power for residents, the cost of power for industries in California, which might well impact the, the, the entire face of industry in California. If, if power becomes too expensive, then that might cause all corporations to move elsewhere. Yeah. In the U.S., we have a very um, centralized electricity system and um, electricity and power utilities are actually really it's moving from fossil fuels to electricity and power utilities sort of being on the front line of climate change here and investors concerns about what kind of fuel they're using and um, using natural gas and fossil fuels increasingly people are worried about that so but to decentralize the climate system and to have more wind and solar those windy and solar places are like different places in the in the country. So you have to rebuild the whole electric grid. And that, people say that could take like 30 years. So we, we have a long road ahead of us. So are people trying to actually fund that for 30 years? Are, are people that forward looking? Are investors that forward looking? Or, or do things tend to be more short-sighted? For sure. Some investors have told me that they wish the government would fund the upgrades to the electrical grid and they'll invest in the wind and the solar projects because they know how to do that. It's really hard to do that. But there's increasingly transmission lines and electricity trading strategies and stuff like that. But the government really controls a lot of the infrastructure there. So that is definitely a project that should happen. And is this likely to be a federal initiative? Should it come to pass or is it going to be a patchwork of individual state programs? I'd say as long as the federal government isn't that interested in climate change, and then it'll probably be a patchwork of states. What we see now is a, is a complete fragmentation and different states taking different stances on climate change and what their role should be. California happens to have a very, very, very strong stance on climate change with a very, very, very high target for 2045. The issue here is that PG&E is a very key player in reaching those targets. So if they were to be wiped out by bankruptcy proceedings following this fire, rather ironically, they're actually going to be needed to help meet these targets in the first place. And uh, the stock is actually up today because investors are betting that California will back them because they need them. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. to hurricanes and other major storms like typhoons. We've seen plenty of that this year. 
We had the second year in a row, at least in the U.S., with multiple storms that caused wide-scale destruction. It might even be more than two years. Uh, are hurricanes getting more frequent and stronger? So when you look at hurricanes, it's not so much the frequency that matters, it's the strength that matters, because that's where the, the damage comes from, and that's ultimately where the cost is incurred. And they're getting stronger. If you look at the damage that's, that's been incurred in the U.S. since the 1980s, uh, we've seen that actually what 31% of total damage costs from hurricanes happened in 2017 alone from three hurricanes, Hurricane Harvey, Maria, and Irma. So they're getting more powerful. That's because uh, sea levels are, sorry, uh, sea levels are rising, but also the temperature of the water is, is increasing, which makes them more intense. When they're more powerful, we get c category five hurricanes, for example, making landfall. That's where the damage happens. Last year, there were a lot of billion-dollar storms, so the damage is definitely increasing from these hurricanes when they make landfall. And Dan and I have both uh, lived overseas in Asia, which is also, uh, you know, suffering from typhoons that that we read about. Can you tell us how how these kinds of storms are wreaking havoc in Asia as well, or other places around the world? Yeah. So the typhoon that we saw in in Asia this year was the most powerful on record, I believe. Uh, and the fact that it happened to hit some major cities and we're seeing huge, over, not overpopulation, but we're seeing huge population rises in coastal areas around Asia, uh, Hong Kong, for example, the, the damage is tangible and, and you can really see it in the cities there. So cities are having to make two options. The first one is to either um, make themselves more resilient uh, with flooding defenses and, and storm defenses, or it's a case of, you know, essentially giving up and, and moving inland. And that hasn't happened yet. But that's something that, you know, if, these frequency, if the frequency of large scale and, and strong storms happens to go up, then that might be the only option in the future. That is already happening in New Orleans in the U.S. And um, home prices in the U.S. have actually fallen around hurricanes and wildfires. And um, I think Bloomberg found that homes in areas exposed to fires and hurricanes were worth less last year on average than a decade earlier. So you are starting to see this risk get incorporated in that and, you know, people buying flood insurance or being able to obtain flood insurance. Exactly. And even in Puerto Rico, we saw a 15% reduction in house prices following Hurricane Maria last year. Um, in the most affected areas, that was over 60%. Is economics treated as something distinct from climate change? And do you see this year or perhaps the past two years as being a watershed in how people view economics. In other words, it's not just how much do I get and am I working? It's all of these things that can contribute to the economic well-being of one's country. Yeah, I'd say that wildfires, droughts, storms, and floods are sort of the most tangible impacts on climate change that we see today. And seeing them wreak such havoc... Um, is sort of elevating the issue for people into the present day. Um, it seemed like a thing that was really far off, but the UN just a few weeks ago came out with this report that said we're really going to start to see effects of 1.5 degrees of global warming by 2040. And that's something a lot of people who are here today will still be around to see. Um, so the investors that I talk to are usually long-term investors. Maybe they'll hold stocks for 30, 40, 100 years. They want to hold them for a really long time. So for them, 2040 is actually just around the corner. And if they're going to hold forever and not sell, they really want to make sure that their companies are incorporating this risk because it really changes the basis of operations. And it's not even just the risk of the storms and the floods, but the risk that the governments will start to get involved and change all the structures and costs that people are used to and change their business model overnight to sort of combat this effect because it's really going to affect human life. And, and this is called um, 
the tragedy of the horizons, which is essentially this concept that the the cycles, the economic cycles, and and what we look for in in the finance community happens on a much shorter scale than the, the the true impacts of things like climate change. I think you're absolutely right in that we're starting to see a shift away from that mentality. We're starting to see you know dots connecting between various climate incidences and you know various cat- catastrophes and and rising costs of of things like living li- living near the coast. And I think people are starting to put the dots together on these things. But what we really need more is 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 kind of uh, awareness and education in the market to show that there are short-term implications as well as long-term implications for things like climate change. And that's where initiatives like the Task Force and Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, the TCFD, uh, are extremely useful. Uh, They provide a framework for companies to disclose the risks that they envision for their corporation, the long-term and the short-term operational risks of their businesses, and and what the financial implications of that might be. And that's, that's crucial for investors. So there is a little bit of a silver lining in all this doom and gloom that we've been talking about today. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the initiatives or or, um, ways that investors can uh, make a difference or or, or business can make a difference in, in dealing with the effects of climate change with respect to hurricanes or maybe even some other issues like uh, agriculture or other things that we haven't discussed? Yeah. I mean, the TCFD, which Dan brought up, they talk about the risks of climate change, but they also want businesses to spell out what their opportunities are in climate change, right? Because when there's change, there's opportunity and on both sides. So we definitely need some seawalls probably, you know, like we're abandoning areas of New Orleans or something, but, you know, the Netherlands has been under sea level for quite a long time. So that's an area where some people are really looking for investment. Um, how, how do you make money off of a seawall? I mean, isn't that a, a kind of a more of a government project? But somebody has to supply the concrete. <laughs> so, yeah, I hear a lot of investors talking about concrete. That's a very interesting area. And also there's some types of cement and concrete that can be used to store carbon and become a carbon sink. So they actually pull carbon out of the atmosphere to create the cement. So people are trying to make even that really good. Um, there's a lot of stuff in electric vehicles, um, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. The automakers are really probably the next area that people are looking at after um, energy production. And then there's also in the drought areas, desalination plants so that people could make more water and have water for agriculture in all these areas where there are worse droughts. Yeah, and, and definitely sustainable agriculture. People are looking at things that do function as carbon sinks like the oceans and um, coastal wetlands and forests and trying to see if they can invest more in those areas and make them tangible. But that's something that really hasn't been done that much before. And what we're seeing uh, in, in the financial community are brand new products and innovations that have been really interesting in, in raising awareness of both the impacts uh, and the risks associated with things like climate change. Take, for example, uh, a brand new concept. You know, It only, occur- only really grew in the last couple of years or so, uh, green bonds. Uh, green bonds are essentially normal corporate bonds, uh, but the, the issuer has committed to disclosing around uh, the environmental impacts of, of the proceeds uh, that have been raised by that bond. And... Green bonds have grown phenomenally. We've seen upwards of uh, $500 billion worth of green bonds issued in the last three years alone. And those can be financing anything from renewable energy to sustainable agriculture to biodiversity. So we're seeing a real uptick in financial instruments that are helping to convey the message and the importance of, of, of climate change and environmental degradation, um, but also showing you the, the benefits of doing so. All right. Last question, Dan and Emily. China or the United States, which one is going to be 
uh, bigger in the world of you know, green investment, sustainable finance, whatever you want to call it. Which one is going to be bigger, say, 20 years from now? I know when I was uh, an editor for Bloomberg in China, I was starting to hear a lot about green bonds and that sort of thing. And China likes to make a lot of noise about how it's uh, you know going to be big on these kinds of issues. What's your take on it? Well, I think China's going to be the market leader in this space, uh, but that comes at a caveat. So when we look at the future, when we look at, say, to 2050, uh, we expect around $9.3 trillion worth of investments into renewable energy, new renewable energy built globally. 5.5 trillion of that will be in, in the Asia region, and the majority of that will be in China. So in terms of absolute numbers, China will certainly lead. But the caveat being, when you look at things like green bonds and green finance, China's view of what green is is very different to the rest of the world. Uh, when we look at green bonds specifically, China believes that clean coal uh, is actually a category of, of financing that, that is sustainable and that is green. That doesn't fly anywhere else. So they will be the market leader, but they, they have a slightly different definition of what green is. Yeah, and a lot of the investors I talk to, they say China's already winning a little bit. They've definitely invested... The, a lot the past few years, um, just put billions into green bond issuance, into building solar, um, you know, so much that the U.S. did the tariffs on their solar panels this year. They're really the capital for a lot of this renewable energy infrastructure and technology coming out of there. And the U.S. like hasn't really gotten its act together as a government to do that. So a lot of investors are worried it's kind of a missed opportunity here. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Dan Shuri of Bloomberg New Energy Finance and Emily Chasen of Bloomberg News and the Good Business Newsletter at Bloomberg. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as podcast destinations such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Scott Landman. Dan Moss, you're at Moss underscore eco. Dan Shuri, you are at Daniel S-H-U-R-E-Y. And Emily, you are at E Chasen, C-H-A-S-A-N. All right. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forges. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we wish all of our American listeners a happy Thanksgiving. See you next time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.